Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Hawley. Today joining us uh, is a special guest, and, and I think this might be uh, one of the most special because I think without him, uh, Coffee House Questions might not exist, and especially the podcast. And it's because of his encouragement uh, that I started the blog a little over two years ago and then started the podcast uh, over a year ago. And so it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting to have him on again. And so joining me is the cold case homicide detective, Jay Warner Wallace, and he has just written a new book that we are going to be discussing called Forensic Faith. A homicide detective makes the case for a more reasonable, evidential Christian faith. And so, Jim, thank you so much for joining me on the Coffee House Questions again. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's funny we talked about how um, those of us who are interested in making the case, and that should be all of us, right, who are interested in making the case, but some of us really want to have uh, to even take another step. And that's what you've done, Ryan, with, with the uh, podcast and with your blog. And I know it's funny. We did that class together at Biola, and that's where I first kind of challenged uh, the cl- students I had in class to to take this additional step, especially since you guys are all studying apologetics and you've got so much information running around in your head. It's time to share that. And of all the people that I challenged to do that, I can say without a doubt that you're the one who probably leaned in the, the, the heaviest and uh, have now produced, I think, some great content. And you're reaching an entire audience that that I'm not going to reach. That's why we need everyone who's interested to get in the game. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You, you know, I, I remember that conversation and you kind of challenging us and me saying, like, do you really think I could do that? And you're like, oh, it's so easy. Just just start one. Just start a podcast. It's easy. You can do it. And just, okay, all right, let's let's go for this and let's see what happens. Yeah, look, you've already built an audience with this podcast, and this is what so I hope is an encouragement to everyone who's listening to us, right, that that you think we're in a place right now where the technology is available to us. I mean, if you didn't have any bumper music and you just started off talking and you did it on your iPhone, I mean, it doesn't take much to host a program. It, all of us need to get in this. We're in an information age, and you can tell everything is changing. The way we consume media is changing. The way we, we track the news is changing. I mean, who would have thought? You know, I was grew up as a kid. There were like three major network outlets for news, and that was it. Yeah. And now a lot of the news we get is coming to us. Of course, we have to vet it properly. We have to. That's the problem with the information age is that all that kind of authority is is kind of d- diluted because you're not quite sure who is telling you the truth and who can be trusted. But but that was really probably always the case. We just had a tendency to trust that the outlets. Well, look. I think all of us are now, um, as Christians, have a voice not only in our own families and in our own communities and in our own churches, but you may have an international um, voice if you choose to start talking about these things on on the internet. And I, I think that, that yeah, you're a great, great, great example, great model. I mean, all, both of us are. Look, we, we we aren't professional broadcasters. You and I don't I don't possess a, a special degree that allows me to. But, you know, I do have a GoPro and, and it's got a microphone and I can I can do some research and start talking. And, and if people uh, start following you on the podcast and start listening, well, then before you know it, you've developed an audience. So so I just want to encourage all the people who are listening to who might be thinking, well, yeah, I, I'm a consumer. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to Ryan's podcast, maybe even listen to mine. But but you're not yet a, a, a content producer. It's time at some point for all of us, you know, to stop being the baby Christians and, and, and be the consumer of information, but to start being the teachers who are mentoring others. And that's really, Ryan, what you're doing here on the podcast. That's good. Thank you. You know, and, and I think I mentioned it before, and I think it was towards the end of uh, 2016 when I kind of looked at the stats of the year and recognizing, you know, I, I spent four years as a missionary in the Dominican Republic and, and the importance of having, you know, people in the country ministering and, and sharing the gospel and, and helping the people and how important that is. 
but then also looking at uh, you know the money and the time that I spent to do that. Um, and then also on the flip side, kind of uh, I think when I started the podcast, it cost me ten dollars uh, that I spent right. on an app to record, and it had gone out to over 115 countries uh, within the first year. And so just, you know, kind of seeing that reach that you're talking about of, of how we're able to, to make an impact in so many different countries with the Internet and the information age that we have today, uh, that was impossible, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, don't take that for granted. What you just said is very powerful because we, I mean, as a church leader, I've been on church staffs. Um, I have been a youth pastor, a lead pastor, and I can tell you we have to always evaluate our missional efforts. And one way, and I think it's a fair way, to evaluate your missional effort is to think about it in terms of kingdom expense. You know, all these things we do uh, have great benefits, but they also have some kingdom expense. In other words, money raised by members of the kingdom here, the Christians in the church, who are, are, are applying that money, uh, trying to do God's work. And of course, there are many ways to do this. I'm not suggesting this is the only way. But what I mean is we might spend that money on food programs for the poor, on housing, clothing. That's fine. But I'm talking about our evangelistic efforts. We spend money on that as a group. And it turns out that one of the most effective ways you can share the message of Christianity in terms of dollar per impact is probably what we're doing right now. And that's why I say, and like you said, like you said, it doesn't take any – it's an interest. We have an intense interest. And that's really all we had to start with. And that was enough, it turns out, yeah. to get us started and, and actually have the kind of huge – now you've got 100 – at the end of this year, you'll have you know added another 30% to that. And I used to say when I first started podcasting, I had a podcast called the Please Convince Me Podcast, and I would always say it's the fastest-growing apologetics podcast in the country. Well, that was because in the first year, you went from one listener, you know, to if you go from one listener to two, you got a hundred percent growth, right? So of course, every, every one of us in the first year that we're doing our apologetics podcast has the fastest growing apologetics podcast. Yeah. That's just it's so interesting that 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 is the case. Once you start talking about these issues, and if you're listening to us right now as a content consumer, once you start becoming a content producer, trust me, the audience will follow. Yeah. And there are people who are interested in these conversations. And by the way, you might think, well, yeah, but you know, you're a high school teacher and you, you deal with youth or you're a, a cold case detective. So you have this unique angle. Well, yet really, whatever angle you have, it's not so much the professional uh, starting point for those of us who are doing this. It's, it's really um, kind of your heart, your experience, your life experience, um, you know, and the number of kids you have or don't have, the number of years that you were single or, or were married or you're not single or you're not married. Believe it or not, every single position and status of life can be used by God uh, in communicating the gospel. So I just want to encourage people who are listening, hey, if we can do it, and, I'll be, we, and we honestly, you, you and I, Ryan, we just, we're just using our home computers to yep. produce this content. Uh, anybody can do it. So it's time to get out there and start. Yeah, it's easy. Absolutely. Well, and I think that whole conversation really ties into this newest book that you came out uh, with. And so uh, I'd love to kind of jump in and, and kind of continue sure. this discussion and kind of point people back to uh, your book, Forensic Faith. Uh, again, a homicide detective makes the case for a more reasonable evidential Christian faith. Um, and this came out back in uh, May. Is that correct? Or yeah. June? So it, we're, we're kind of, you know, we, we've held on to this book for almost a year. Because when I first started writing books, I knew I wanted to write a trilogy, a, a case for Christianity, which is cold case Christianity, the case for God's existence, which is God's crime scene. And again, I'm taking a very uh, specific, unusual um, detective's angle in on both of those. And so I was trying to produce um, a, an approach 
that people would recognize from all the years they've been watching TV and watching these crime shows. And also would be a way that, that they could recommunicate to their friends uh, without having to be highly philosophical or use the historical method. I wanted to kind of use the techniques that we use at crime scenes and the techniques that we use when interviewing suspects to kind of make the case for those two issues. Now, I knew as I started to speak around the country, though, that a lot of churches um, you get there and people would say things like, wow, I had no idea that. You could even do any of this, that you could even look at Christianity this way. They they had never had anyone make the case for them for Christianity, and they had really no idea why the ability to make the case would be important in the first place. And sadly, a lot of the churches that I uh, would speak at, you know, it seemed like the lead pastor really wasn't even interested in apologetics. Um, and so I had to make a case for making the case. Uh, and that's what uh, forensic faith tries to do. It makes yeah. the case for why we ought to be making the case uh, and take a different approach, a more evidential, uh, reasonable approach to our Christian faith. That's good. You know, when I was uh, just uh, staffing at Summit Ministries, and you're also on faculty with Summit, uh, and so it's right. great seeing you there. Uh, but I that's constantly right. had students asking me, okay, here's three books by J. Warner Wallace. Uh, what? Are, how are they different? What? Um, you know, which one should I get? And and right. uh, so it's kind of it's. I think it's good to kind of point out that you know these three books really tie in together uh, in this kind of trilogy um, in, in the sense of one making a case for the gospels, one making a case for God's existence, and then why we need to make the case. Um, yeah, and the idea here was to give you a, a pretty robust um, approach because we, we, in the other books, you know, we talked about some of the techniques we use in, det- in working investigations, you know, the chain of custody, how we look at certain crime scenes, how we separate artifacts from evidence, how we value, we have a template for evaluating eye- eyewitnesses. These are the things that we do every day. And I think for the most part, those are helpful tools when you're examining the Gospels and examining the evidence for God's existence. But I wanted uh, really uh, to, to summarize, to give it more robust uh, treatment of how to be a good, well, how do you, how, how can we live on a daily basis that um, would help us to be in the world, but not of the world? So in other words, this is a book that's really very practical about how to put this head knowledge into practice, because the first two books have a lot of data. You know, here's the data for the gospel reliability. Here's the data for God's existence. Now you've got that stuff. Now, what do you, how do you, how do you take this back to the church? How do you take it back to your friends who aren't Christians? And how do you engage them with this material and make the case? So a lot of this book is about how do you investigate uh, truth claims uh, in general, and then uh, look at that, apply that to the Bible. And then how do you communicate how to, uh, for example, how do prosecutors communicate a case in a winsome way to a jury? Sometimes these cases we have to communicate are so difficult and are so circumstantial in their nature that it really requires a kind of a gift set that I've been, I've worked out. I, I honestly think I've worked with the best criminal prosecutor in the nation uh, for the last 15 years and just watching and working with him and planning with him on how to, to communicate these cases has taught me a number of things. That's what I wanted to kind of communicate in this book to, to, to get people really to accept their duty, to learn how to train, to learn how to become good investigators, and finally to learn how to communicate the, the truth claims of Christianity. That's great, yeah. Yeah, so your book is you broken up into those four sections, like you said. You know, first, embracing your calling as a Christian casemaker. Um, you know, then preparing yourself to protect and serve as a first responder. You know, part three is examining the claims of Christianity like a good detective. And then part four is share what you believe like a good prosecutor. Um, so when you kind of go around the country speaking, you do a lot of speaking events uh, all over the country. Um, do you find that people uh, are embracing their calling to be a Christian casemaker? 
No, my gosh, no. I sadly, it's it's. Um, I I was so surprised. Um, you know, remember, I wasn't a Christian until I was 35, so I didn't really grow up in the church, and I didn't really have a clear view of what people in the church were even like. And I and I, I lament that a little bit. I mean, a lot. I mean, I wish I'd have had somebody who would have kind of taken me under their wing and and shown me how to be a Christian myself. And introduced me to other Christians. So I kind of expected when I became a Christian and I took this approach, this more forensic approach to the question of Christianity, I figured everybody did that. I thought that's that's how all of us become Christians, right? I mean, I just didn't know anybody uh, to know any better. So when I started traveling, I, I met Christians in, in churches all over the country, not, not just Bible Belt churches, not just the churches in the south or the west, southwest, but I'm talking about everywhere in the country from, you know, the northeast across to the northwest. Uh, I realized that the vast majority of us are what I would hate to say it this way, but um, in many ways, we're accidental Christians. In other words, we're in the right place. But we may not be in the right place for the right reason. We don't even know why it's the right place. We've never even examined any of the claims evidentially. Uh, we've either been raised in the faith, which is the largest group of people I ask when I ask them, why are you a Christian? That is the number one answer I get. I was raised in the, in the faith. And if I asked them, hey, can you give me any good reasons to trust the reliability of Scripture? You would be amazed at the inability of most of us. And maybe you wouldn't, uh, but because you've known people who are in this, in this category. But, um, you know, I've got family, uh, six brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters who are all raised Mormon. And uh, the answers that I my Christian friends give me as to why they are Christians are very much the same answers my Mormon family gives me as to why they are Mormons. They'll say, you know, well, I was raised in the church or I've had an experience that confirmed for me that this is true. Uh, those are two Mormon answers. Those are also the two most popular Christian answers. Now, we know that that approach to truth does not um, protect you from error because Mormons use that approach and it's not protecting them from error. There's another way you could, come, you could approach this. You could say, okay, these are the claims made by the system. But then I went out and I investigated the claims and I saw that the claims that were made by the system were actually true. And therefore, I'm, I'm part of this system. Well, no one does that. <laughs> Very few people actually do that. Instead, they are, are members of these groups, either Mormonism, whatever, uh, you know, every uh, theistic system, if it's Islam or Buddhism or whatever it is, the vast majority of us give the same answers. We're here because we were raised this way or we're here because we've had some experience along the way that confirmed it was true for us. But it turns out that's probably not quite enough to protect you. Uh, it might lead you to truth, but it might also lead you to error because we can't all be right. And if all of us are taking the same approach, uh, that that approach is probably not quite sufficient to to get the job done. Yeah. Well, even just uh, this last week, I was speaking at Colorado State University for Ratio Christi chapter there and uh, on world religions. Can they all be true? And, and one of the questions that came up was, well, every religion claims to have truth. Uh, you know, the Hindu is going to claim that they have truth and, and the Buddhist claims that they have truth and the, and the Muslim claims they have truth. So so what makes you unique? And so what you're kind of saying right here is if we only base it off where we're born, uh, then, you know, we can't really claim to have something uh, that the other religions don't. Um, yeah. So, so you know, and then you kind of brought up this accidental Christian. So so how would uh, how could a Christian respond to that uh, that would set them apart um, from, you know, the Hindu, or the, the Mormon or the, the Buddhist or the, the Muslim? Well, let me say a couple of things before we get started. Just the fact that people right now who are listening to this podcast recognize that you, you've been speaking at RC chapters, right, like the one in Colorado. And, and that is so powerful because Rosho Christie is probably one of the finest uh, upcoming 
organizations at the college level that are trying to do really good work with college students. It's, it's kind of like a imagine a campus crusade for Christ effort, but it's focused primarily not on worship or on on discipleship or on small groups. It's focused on answering the tough questions through Christian apologetics. You know, this, this is really the focus of Rosho Christie. Yeah. And, and and now after the efforts you've made so far, this is the very first step I took as well, right? We we start speaking at RC chapters because these are people who really could use our help, and they have the same heart to serve that you and I have. So I'm I'm really great. And, you know, and by the way, if 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 you're interested in helping organizations like that, then you'll get these kinds of great questions that you just posed. I mean, this is a great question. I'm sure at some point you'll be answering this on your blog as well, but. But I think this is um, um, absolutely um, – I, 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 so here's how, here's how I answer it, and I try to answer it as I was talking to you before we started this podcast. You know, we, we both try to stay in our lane, right? What, is the, the, what are the gifts that God has given us uniquely that we can hopefully then turn toward the kingdom? And and so for I always look at it in terms of my experience as a detective and, and in all the trials. I think I've been in as many trials, as many high-profile trials as anybody in the country, and I can tell you that – when you make a claim in front of a jury as a prosecutor, your claims are that this defendant sitting at this table to my right, this guy is guilty for these 50 reasons. OK, the defense is going to get up and say, well, no, I'm going to make a, a case that they are misreading the evidence in some way. In other words, he'll make an entirely different set of claims, almost always about the exact same pieces of evidence. I've had very few defense attorneys who will introduce much more than we've already introduced. And we know through discovery process what each side is going to introduce. It's not as though they have an entirely new body of evidence. They don't. They're just going to say we've misinterpreted the evidence that's been in place so far. So we're both looking at the same pieces of evidence and arguing to the jury that you ought to interpret that evidence one of two ways. Well, this is kind of how the world looks at everything, right? In the end, how does the jury make a decision? If both – now they've got two different people who are making two alternative claims that oppose each other. While describing the exact same pieces of evidence. Well, of course, what they're going to be encouraged to do is to look and say, well, OK, you, you, I guess you're getting two claims here, but only one of these claims does the best job of, inter of really explaining the evidence as it is. You're to go back in the jury room and say, look, you've got a claim, but the claim itself is not a piece of evidence. The argument of the defense attorney or the prosecutor is not evidence. You have the evidence that's been submitted to you. Now you have to put your minds to work. To make sure that your explanation for the evidence is the most reasonable. You got to get to that point where you're beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, that's what we have to do with every claim, whether it's about a defendant at the end of my table or about the nature of God. Yeah, sure, of course there are going to be alternative claims about God. <laughs> so, of course. This does not make every claim correct. And if, in fact, these claims contradict one another, so they couldn't be, all be correct. Now, the duty of each evaluator, of each juror, is to say, okay, I, I see the alternative claims, but one of these claims actually best explains the evidence at hand. Let's see which one claim does. And I think if every one of us, when making a decision about God, took that approach, we'd have much, well, number one, I think we'd have a far a fewer competitive theistic worldviews, because in the end, a lot of these worldviews, like Mormonism, you actually have to believe in spite of evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. Now, you may say that there's not enough evidence for you to believe Christianity is true, but you, you don't really have to struggle with the same problem my Mormon family does, where you have to, you're trying to believe something in spite of the fact we've got the body of Jesus, and he's been sitting in a grave, and here he is, been here his whole – nothing like that exists. 
There is no evidence to the contrary. You may you may find that there's not enough evidence to satisfy you. Okay, fine. But you're not going to find evidence to the contrary. Well, it turns out in Mormonism there is evidence to the contrary, and you're going to have to overcome that somehow in order to become a Mormon. Well, we don't have that problem. Wouldn't it be nice if all of us as Christians knew that fact? And that's where I think we have to make a shift in our thinking. We have to be so well prepared and so well familiar with the evidence that, number one, we're going to be protected from error. And hopefully, too, if we're winsome enough, we can communicate to our friends who are, have been fooled by the counterfeits that they have been fooled. Yeah, I think that's good to point out that, you know, that everyone's kind of making these claims you know, to have evidence, but when you really investigate it and see what it is, is there evidence to the contrary uh, or evidence for it? And kind of being able to evaluate that evidence well. Um, another point that you make uh, in Forensic Faith um, is kind of talking about the difference between private and public claims. Uh, how is yeah. Christianity unique in that sense uh, from, for example, from Mormonism? Well, and so this is one of the unique things that I started thinking many years ago about this and how my own experience becoming a Christian was that I started to examine the claims of the system using the skill set that I had as a detective. And it, I, at the same time I was approached uh, about Christianity, that you know my wife was getting interested in going to church and for very practical reasons. And I was not interested in becoming a Christian, but I was more than happy to go to church because I, I wanted to please her. Uh, but I, I did not think it was true. And so we, we go to church, and at the, about the same time I'm starting to get interested in examining the scripture to see if it's true, my Mormon family starts to see this, and they bring to me a Book of Mormon. And they had, had set up meetings with the missionaries at my door, you know. And, and so now here I am as a seeker. I mean, I'm starting to move toward at least being interested. I was not hostile in the sense like Lee Strobel, my friend, who was trying to prove Leslie wrong, his wife. That was not my situation with Susie. I didn't – I thought it was false and was laughably uh, untrue, but, but I wasn't um, – I was sarcastic in that way, but I wasn't like set to prove Susie wrong because Susie wasn't really a Christian either. You know, she just wanted to, you know, she would think she believed that God exists and, and she was certainly familiar with the Jesus story, but we didn't own a Bible. Um, we didn't, we never talked about these things. We've been together for 18 years, um, and, but I started to examine the claims and that's when I realized, wow, I'm in a great position here because think about it. If I, I put this way in the book, if I was to come to you, Ryan, and say I, I had a vision last night and God spoke to me and he gave me three things to share with you on the podcast today, I think you could reasonably be very skeptical about my claims. I mean, it might be true, but you, you could say, well, I don't know, Jim, I'm not sure I can trust that vision was even from God. And I would say to you, well, no, listen, I'm telling you, I've had these visions before. I always know they're from God. and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm as confident right now as I have ever been. That this vision is from God. Here's the three things he wants me to, to tell you. Well, that, that's one way to approach it. And I think you should be skeptical if someone approaches you that way. The other way would be to say, well, okay, I, I got this, this message from God for you, Ryan, and, and he gave it to me yesterday. He came to me in the form of a human. And he had lunch with me in my backyard with a couple of my friends, and he, he gave me this message for you. And, and while he was there, you know, he saw how our this year we had so much rain, I needed to dig an irrigation ditch in my backyard, which, which he helped me do. And then he saw that my tree was empty, and for my kids, he built this amazing treehouse. Okay, now, if that's the claim, that, that, that God actually came to me, not by way of a private vision, but by came to me in public – in front of two of my friends and actually gave me more than a vision. He did a couple of things in my backyard. Well, that second kind of claim I could actually examine very differently than the first kind of claim. I could interview those two friends of yours to see if there was really somebody with you yesterday in the yard. I could with me. You could do that with my friends. You could look in my backyard to see if there's actually an irrigation ditch. You could look in that tree. There should be a really cool tree house. The point I'm trying to make here is that you you could actually verify that 
kind of claim because it allegedly was made publicly in front of two of my friends and it was accompanied by physical acts that I should have some evidence of in the backyard. Well, it turns out that Christianity is that kind of claim. It's the second kind of claim. It's the claim. It's the public claim that uh, you could actually investigate. Now, you can find out if it's false or you might discover it's true. But unlike the private vision kinds of claims, which really, if you think about it, are very much like the, the kind of Eastern religions. Uh, Baha'u'llah was uh, allegedly had several visions from God. And and so uh, and the Baha'i faith. So I mean, you've got two different kinds of categories. Now, now Mormonism also claims to be to record events that occurred in the past publicly, a thousand years worth of events on the North American continent, including a visitation by Jesus Himself. The problem is, is if you investigated the Mormon claims, they fall apart. And that's what's so great about having this approach. It kept me not it, it didn't just guide me to Christianity. It kept me from Mormonism because I was able to falsify the Book of Mormon so quickly and all, uh, lots of other scripture like the Book of Abraham and other other different uh, scriptures of the Mormon Church are easily falsifiable. You're not going to be able to do that with the now you might say, well, there's not enough archaeological evidence. Uh, for me to jump off and believe, well, really? Okay, there, there's hundreds and thousands of archaeological uh, uh, sites and, and, and uh, artifacts uh, that coincide with the Christian story. There are none, not a single one for the Mormon story. In all the years we've been digging in the dirt on this continent, we've never found a single foundation, a single name from the Book of Mormon, a single city mentioned in the Book of Mormon, a single artifact, coin, sword, shield, uh, you know, an animal that was described. I mean, they described horses and elephants on the continent. We have no evidence that any of that ever existed in the time frame in which they said it did. Look, you got problems uh, trying to verify those kinds of public claims, but you don't have that problem with Christianity. So I think in the end, what makes Christianity unique is its public nature, and that ought to make us take a unique approach in how we defend it. Yeah. Well, even last summer, I went to Salt Lake City, Utah, and and uh, toured the brand new, I think it was just newly opened uh, museum, the Mormon Museum there, and uh, went through the entire museum, and at the very end, uh, noticed that all of the artifacts started in the early 1800s with the life of Joseph Smith. And so at the end of the tour, I went up to the information booth, and uh, the two you know volunteers were sitting there and at the information counter, and I asked the first one, I said, hey, I have a question. Um, where are all of the Nephite and Lamanite artifacts? And he responded, he goes, wow, that's a really good question. And the lady next to him turned to him and said, well, what did he ask? And he said, he wants to know where, where, where we have all the Lamanite and Nephite artifacts. And she goes, well, um, well, I, we don't have them here. And I said, well, where are they? And she goes, well, we, we actually don't have them anywhere. We've never found them. And I said, okay, well, thank you very much. And I kind of walked away, but you know, there's a, you know, another story, kind of what you're saying of that the Book of Mormon makes these claims uh, that we have had no evidence of, of finding any of these things. And and here at the Museum for Mormons, they even admitted that. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's incredibly tragic in some ways because I, I used to be to me, it was like, you know, you think, oh, you're having an aha moment here. See, there you go. You got no evidence. But that's I'm, my actually my heart is broken now for a people group and my family included. 
that uh, would would not number one would have no problem with that, or or would discover it and have a problem with it, and realize they've spent so much of their life in a system that's not true. And you know, the vast number of, of ex Mormons don't become Christians; they become atheists. They feel like, hey, you can fool me once, but you're not going to fool me twice. Yeah. And they just stay out of the system altogether. And that's just heartbreaking to me. But you're right about this public nature of the system is such that the only thing that's true about Mar- about Mormonism starts with Joseph in his life. No, Joseph Smith really did live and that's why we can, can form a museum with the archaeological or with the historical artifacts from joseph because he actually did live the problem is none of the story of the book of mormon is true and that's why the artifacts stop or actually begin with joseph and are don't don't predate joseph i mean he he is a true character in history but nothing about what he wrote is true and that's the problem is is that in the end now you again you might say, well, Jim, that's fine, but I don't think there's enough archaeology or enough of this or enough of that. That's a whole other issue, and that's why it's so important for us to teach the rules of evidence to our hearers. It's not enough just to give you the data. If you don't understand how we assemble cases evidentially, that's the one thing I hope to bring to the Christian community because uh, you know, most of us try to make a case, but we've never had to make a case in front of a jury to see how you really make a case. And once you've done that a few times, uh, then you're in a position where you can say, well, look – you're heading for a sta- your standard of proof right now is, is messed up to begin with because the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt it's beyond a reasonable doubt and then how you are how you verify things how you how you can uh, falsify things these are our techniques we use in criminal trials and I think if every Mormon understood those rules of evidence they wouldn't be Mormons and uh, hopefully they would find uh, themselves in the Christian community because if they love Jesus and so much so that they want to put him in, his, in the name of their church, there's only one place to love Jesus, and that's in the church. Yeah. And it's not the Mormon church. It's in, in the Christian church. And so you'd hope that at some point uh, just understanding how evidence works would lead them back home. Absolutely. Well, we are already out of time for part one. Uh, we are discussing uh, forensic faith. A homicide detective makes the case for a more reasonable evidential Christian faith with Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining me for this first part. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Looking forward to part two. All right. Yeah. In part two, we're going to be talking about embracing your calling as a Christian casemaker. And then also, how do you uh, share what you believe like a good prosecutor? So make sure you do not miss part two. And as always, if you have any comments or questions, you can send those in at uh, contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Find us on Facebook, Coffeehouse Questions, Twitter at Ryan Polly 3 or you can text in your comments and questions at 714-989-6927. Thank you so much for listening. Don't make, make sure you do not miss part two. This has been Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly. Won't hesitate to follow your